Well, good to see you all. Good morning to you. And we're uh, going to continue in our series um, on Advent. And uh, with the arrival of Jesus, which is the focus of Advent. And so we're going to be looking at uh, perhaps the Bible's, in some ways, most astonishing Advent texts. Revelation 12. So you can join me in turning to the end of your Bibles in Revelation chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some under seats nearby you. So please do grab one and find Revelation 12. And before we look at this story, I want to ask you about other stories, dragon-slaying stories. So what are some well-known stories where the great threat is some kind of dragon and someone rises to rescue people by conquering that dragon. You're going to have to say, Smaug, that's my favorite, The Hobbit. What a great story by Tolkien. Yes. Any others? Just yell it out. Beowulf, King Arthur. It's good. I still need to read Beowulf. That was assigned for me. And I read like the first page and the last page and tried to figure out the rest from that. Didn't work well, so I still need to read that one. What else? Can you even think of any? St. George and the Dragon. Put up the picture. There it is. So this ancient legend about a thousand years ago, St. George and the Dragon, I first heard about this. I had never heard of it, about it until I went to visit Ethiopia, uh, where our son Moses is from, and he's the patron saint. St. George is the patron saint of Ethiopia. So this image, uh, different ones like this, this is the coolest one in my opinion, but there's a lot of images around of St. George and the Dragon, echoes of another dragon slayer from the Bible. Uh, think of the classic story, Pilgrim's Progress, with Apollyon, this dragon-like figure that's conquered. Used to be one of the most uh, well-read books outside of the Bible throughout church history. So if you haven't read Pilgrim's Pilgrim's Progress, please do it. Kids, ask your parents to read it to you if you can't read yet. Um, You know, Tolkien, who wrote The Hobbit, wrote another dragon-slaying type story. Um, Anyone read Farmer Giles of Ham? Other than my boys? Boys? Yes? Put out your hands. Any? Okay, we got one. One. Two. Three? Great. Okay. So next Advent, I'll ask. Well, I don't know if I'll do a dragon slaying message then. Anyways, you should read it. Farmer Giles of Ham. Uh, it's a great story about a dragon wreaking havoc in a town, and Farmer Giles needs to defeat it. Uh, now, I wanted to talk about these great dragon slaying stories before we talk about Advent because those stories have more to do with Advent than perhaps we thought. Here's what I mean. All of those stories echo the true story of the Bible. Uh, And they resonate with us uh, because we are part of an epic dragon-slaying story. History is the story of one who came to save his people his bride, the church, by slaying a dragon. And because we're part of this story, it is just woven into the fabric of history and who we are. And so I think the Bible would indicate that this is why we tell these kinds of stories across cultures and why they resonate so deeply within us. Christmas, then, 
Advent, the first Advent, is the arrival of this dragon-conquering hero, Jesus. Now, we may not think about this when we think about the Christmas story. Many people set up nativity scenes, and who's at the nativity scene? You have Mary, you have Joseph, you have shepherds and some animals. Revelation 12 uh, gives us another aspect of this scene. And here we see, and we'll, we'll read it in just a moment, a woman giving birth to a child, but the shepherds and sheep are not around her in this scene. A dragon is standing in front of her, ready to devour the child. So I mentioned this text briefly uh, last year in Advent, and a few of you sent me pictures of nativity scenes with red dragons. So there is a tradition that recognizes this as a nativity scene. So kids, maybe, you know, if you're drawing what you hear in this sermon, I would love to see what you draw, especially those first few verses here. And maybe you can, whatever you draw, or maybe later you can create a red dragon and put it in your nativity scene. Um, It would be fitting. So here's what I want us to see from this text. Christmas is the arrival of Jesus as the great dragon slayer who came to rescue us and free us. The Bible shows that this is the true story of history. It's the dragon slaying story to which all the other dragon stories, slaying stories echo. So, or to point, all of them point to this one and echo this one. So, Revelation chapter 12, we'll read the whole chapter and then consider it more closely. And just a note before we get into this, this is the book of Revelation filled with apocalyptic vision. So, it's a genre of literature called apocalyptic filled with symbolism. And so, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns And on his head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. 
And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea." Uh, This is God's word, and now let's respond in prayer to him. Our Father, we thank you for your word here, and we need your help in the rest of our time together to understand this and to respond appropriately to it. So please work in our minds and hearts by your Spirit's power to show us your plan for history, to show us what this means for our lives, and to show us the beauty of Jesus. Amen. Well, this is a different kind of text, isn't it? Christmas is the arrival of the great dragon slayer, Jesus, who's come to rescue us and set us free. The Bible shows us that the true story of history is the dragon slaying story to which all other dragon slaying stories point. So, in light of that, if you've been with us for the past few months, as we've considered the book of Daniel, this may sound somewhat familiar. For those of you who are sad that we were done with Daniel because you wanted more apocalyptic visions, here we are. For those of you who are glad to be done, here we are. Um, No, it's wonderful. And we've seen the past few months as we studied Daniel that these visions are given in a symbolic way to communicate um, great realities that are encouraging, especially for Christians who go through, or God's people, who go through suffering. And so I chose this text this morning because it does actually echo Daniel in several ways. It's a fitting Advent text in light of the book of Daniel. So here's what this symbolic vision shows us. Advent is when Jesus came to rescue us by conquering Satan, who's depicted as a serpent or a dragon here. And this chapter tells this story in three main scenes. So we'll walk through each one. We'll see the first scene is a conflict, and then a victory, and then the wilderness. So first the conflict. This is the first six verses here. Now there's three main characters, right? a woman, a dragon, and a child. So first the woman. In verse 1, we see a sign in heaven, and this woman Uh, She's radiant, right? She's clothed with the sun and with a moon under her feet, perhaps a a sign of of authority over uh, authority. So imagine looking up in the night sky and seeing this kind of vision, a woman radiating the light of the sun, standing over the moon, and she's pregnant, and she's crying out in birth pains. And then we see the dragon in verse 3. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, echoes from the book of Daniel. Um, these beasts that had multiple heads and horns, signs of authority and kings and kingdoms. Because as actually, side note, if you keep reading in Revelation, the next chapter, a beast rises from the sea. And, and what Revelation showing us is that the beast represents human authority to conquer God's people on the earth and bring persecution. And here we get before that, the dragon is behind them and influencing them. Satan stands behind the other earthly conflicts. So we see this dragon, and with his tail, he swept down a third of the stars of heaven, cast them down to the earth. 
And the dragon is now standing in front of this woman. And in verse 4, his mind is set on devouring this child. And then in verse 5, we're introduced to the child. She gave birth to a male child, the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But the dragon doesn't devour this child. Instead, the child is caught up to God and to his throne in heaven. And then in verse 6, the woman escapes to the wilderness for protection. So what's going on here? Who's the woman? Who's the dragon? Who's the child? Well, we know who the child is. It's Jesus, right? John tells us who the dragon is in verse 9. He's called the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan. So John does not want us to miss what this represents. But who's the woman and what's this conflict all about? Well, here's a rule of thumb when, re- when interpreting the book of Revelation and the symbolism here. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand the story of the Old Testament and various texts of the Old Testament, especially Daniel. And when we look back on the Old Testament, we see that this story that we just read in Revelation 12 is really just the continuation of a long story from long before a long story of ongoing conflict. So if you know your Bible, when is the first time that we, that we meet a woman and a serpent or dragon and the promise of a child? Genesis 2. That's right. Those first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 3, show us the story of God creating Adam and Eve to be in a perfect relationship with Him. But then in Genesis 3, a serpent... This dragon, Satan, entered the garden, and he tempted the woman to rebel against God, and she did, along with Adam, and sin entered the world. And then God cursed the serpent, and he made a promise in Genesis 3.15. He said this to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We call this the first promise of the gospel from all the way at the beginning of the Bible. And here's what it says. There will be a conflict in human history between the offspring of the woman and the serpent's offspring. And it will come to a climax at some point when the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent victoriously. And the serpent will be hostile to the woman's children, but the child will come and conquer him, signaling a reverse of all the effects of the fall in the world, a restoration to the way the world was supposed to be, and even better. So that's this promise that's given. And then right after this, the very next verse in Genesis 3.16, God also says this to the woman, that she will have pain in childbearing. So the promised Messiah, the language that's used to refer to this anointed one who's to come later in the Bible, this promised Messiah would come to conquer the serpent, and it would be coming through the pain of childbearing. And then the story progresses in the Old Testament. Eve's line continues through Abraham, which continues to the people of Israel, and all through the stories of the Old Testament, we hear this promise echoed. We hear of God's people, Israel, Uh, against the enemies of God and His people, Israel. Enemies, we hear over and over, um, are described, the conflict is described in ways that echo that first promise with their heads crushed. Um, If you're familiar with the Bible, you may remember 
um, a promise that was given to Israel in Numbers 24, where the, the enemies of God's people's foreheads would be crushed, or the story of Jael crushing Sisera's head in rescuing God's people, or David and Goliath. Goliath described in serpentine kinds of ways, and then David slings a stone, and it crushes his forehead, and he falls to the ground. So, the enemies of God, heads crushed, echoing this promise of this this continued conflict. And then the prophets often refer to Israel as a woman, and they promise that through Israel, through this woman, the promised Messiah would come And some of the prophets spoke of Israel going through birth pains before this great Messiah would come. The Jewish people would refer to this as the birth pains of the Messiah, the great suffering that would come leading to the birth of the Messiah. And then we come to this vision in Revelation, which is drawing on this ancient story. And we hear of a woman with a crown of 12 stars likely representing the 12 tribes of Israel, representing the people of God here. And she, this representative figure of God's people, gives birth to a Messiah who would crush a serpent and bring salvation. So who's the woman? Well, the woman is a symbolic representation of the people of God. And, And in this symbolic representation, we hear echoes of Eve and Israel and even Mary, right? Eve was promised that through her line it would lead to this Messiah, And then Israel came from her and is viewed as a woman who would bring forth the Messiah. And then Mary came as this faithful Israelite, this new Eve who actually did give birth to the Messiah. I think the people of God as a whole are mainly in view here. And who's the dragon? Well, the dragon is this ancient serpent who has always opposed God's people. He's at enmity against the woman, the people of God. And look at verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So what's going on here? What does it mean that his his tail swept down the stars of heaven? Well, that is probably an echo of Daniel uh, chapter 8 verse 10. Several of weeks ago we looked at it and it referred, it was a symbolic representation actually of Antiochus the fourth, this terrible Greek ruler from the second century. And this vision was of, of uh, him casting down stars from heaven and it was a way of representing his persecution of God's people. God's people were rep- represented as stars in the heaven that were cast down and trampled In other words, God's people were persecuted and trampled, and tens of thousands of them were killed in this this three-and-a-half-year period in the second century by Antiochus. And here we see now that the dragon was standing behind that axe and axe like him. Before the coming of the Messiah, the dragon swept down the stars of heaven with his tail, right, persecuting God's people. Israel before that came. And then after his conflict and persecution, when the Messiah is about to be born, he stands ready to devour that Messiah. And then the long-awaited Messiah is born. And do you remember what happened when Jesus was born? Any echoes of this kind of conflict? You remember Herod and his rage against Jesus as a baby and how he sought to kill Jesus and He ended up killing the baby boys in Bethlehem, probably a couple dozen of them. We're seeing here Satan was behind that rage because Satan wanted to have Jesus destroyed. But notice what it says about this child, Jesus, in verse 5. She gave birth to a male child 
one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. This is a summary of Jesus' first advent in a nutshell. He was born, and then he left. He ascended to the Father. Now, John here, in telling this vision, doesn't dwell on the details of what happened between Jesus' birth and his ascension. He's talked about that already in this book of Revelation. Um, He doesn't dwell on those details because he's already mentioned them. But here's the point. Jesus escaped the clutches of the dragon. Satan did not conquer him. His plan was foiled. He failed. So this shows us that Jesus came in the midst of this great conflict. It was a conflict that began back in Eden, ran through all of history, coming to this climax at his birth, and Satan, ready to devour him, failed because God is in charge. And so when you see a nativity, picture a red dragon there, a red dragon who is about to be conquered. Maybe before Christmas, the red dragon's sitting there, and then maybe once Christmas comes, you kind of throw him away. He's disposable every year. Um, So that's the first scene, the conflict. Now, the second scene we get here in verses 7 to 12 is the victory. This shows us the victory that Christ and his people have over the dragon. So Jesus was born. He died. He rose and he ascended the story of Jesus. And through that, he accomplished his victory over Satan. You know, when Jesus was in his ministry and he sent his disciples around the area to preach uh, the good news, Luke, 11, or Luke chapter 10, verses, uh, in, in Luke chapter 10, we read this. The 72, he sent out 72, returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And then Jesus responds this way, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. So Jesus is speaking about how through his ministry, he was bringing Satan down. And then he spoke about his coming death and resurrection in John chapter 12, verse 31. And he said this, as he's on the, on the edge of approaching his death and resurrection, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That's what, he, that's what Jesus was doing as he was approaching his death and resurrection. He was seeing that what he was, going about to, he was about to do was to cast the ruler of this world out, Satan. And then now in verses 7 to 12, we see that not only that Jesus accomplished that victory, but we see how it's applied in two ways. We see this victory applied in heaven with angels and then on earth with his people. So first it's applied in heaven with his angels. Look at verse 7 with me. Now a war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. And he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Now some people read this, and if you don't have the context of the Old Testament story, and you're not thinking about what's going on in Revelation 12, you could read this and think what some think, which is that this happened at the beginning of creation before the fall. This is kind of this ancient fall of Satan and his angels um, before even he tempted Adam and Eve. Others say, no, this is a great battle yet to come in the distant future, a few years before Jesus returns. 
But actually, this is a battle that happens immediately as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection. Right? Do you see the flow of thought here? This child was born and caught up to God, and then we have this vision in heaven of Satan being cast down. This is Jesus has accomplished a victory over Satan, and it's being applied immediately. So Michael and his angels then, what they're doing is they are enforcing Christ's victory through his death and resurrection and enthronement in heaven. So these angels are carrying out the sentence that Jesus passed in his death and resurrection when he said, now will the ruler of, heaven, of the world be cast out. So the first application of Jesus' victory is in heaven with the angels casting out Satan. The second application is this vision of earth with God's people. Look at verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, and by, by the way, this is an announcement of what happened as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection and this victory in heaven that happened already 2,000 years ago. It began. Verse 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. Satan's power is in his accusations. I think of Satan's strategy like this. Two steps. Step one, tempt someone to sin. Step two, if step one's successful, step two, accuse them before God. Raise the accusation that we don't deserve to live. We don't deserve God's blessing. We deserve hell. And you know what? He'd be right from one perspective. We have sinned. It is a big deal. It does deserve hell. And if God is a just judge, he should judge us. But here's the power of the victory of Jesus. Here's how it's applied to us in life. Verse 11 shows us the two ways that Jesus' victory applies to our life and we share in it. So let's just drill down into verse 11 for a few moments. So here's the first way that this applies to us. And they have conquered him. God's people have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb. So what does that mean? I mean, let's just pay close attention to the words here. This isn't just saying God's people conquer Satan by Jesus. No, Satan is an accuser of the brothers and sisters, yet they conquer him by the blood of the Lamb. What's going on here? Why is Jesus called a lamb? How do we conquer by his blood? Well, here's how. The image is here of Jesus being a lamb who is sacrificed for sins. A weak lamb slaughtered for sins is the victory of God. It is your victory. Because when a lamb was sacrificed in the Old Testament, a priest would put his hand on the head of the sacrificial animal as a symbolic transfer of the sins of God's people to that animal. And then that animal was killed, basically saying, this animal bears the sins that deserve death, but this animal will be symbolically killed in the place of this, these people, so they don't have to be. 
So the lamb was a substitution. And so here's the result. Whoever the lamb dies for can no longer be accused for those sins. They're removed. Those sins are removed. The person is forgiven, totally cleansed. So here's what this means to conquer. It is to recognize that Jesus is the lamb who died for our sins. And to conquer is to believe that moment by moment. Applying it to our hearts moment by moment. Every time an accusation rises. So here's what it looks like. Satan's power over us is his accusations. He tempts us to sin. Step one, if he's successful, then he accuses us before God. He says, this one sinned and deserves judgment. But here's how we conquer by the blood of the lamb. We say, no, Jesus already took the judgment for me. I'm free. And Satan's accusing power is completely gone. Jesus accomplished his victory by removing the power, the accusing power of Satan. And so we conquer by trusting Christ moment by moment for the forgiveness of sins. We conquer by believing and re-believing the gospel moment by moment. Now, this is incredibly practical. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther um, shows us how to apply this in a practical way better than anyone I've come across. One of my favorite quotes is from his commentary on Galatians, which is actually such an enjoyable read. There's a couple copies on the resource corner if you'd like. It doesn't read so much like a commentary as more like a celebration of the gospel for a couple hundred pages using the book of Galatians as a resource. Um, So it's been a few years since I've shared this quote, which means it's been just under a few years too long. So here it is again. When the devil tells us we are sinners and therefore damned, we may answer, because you say I am a sinner... I will be righteous and saved. Then the devil will say, no, you will be damned. And I will reply, no, for I fly to Christ who has given himself for my sins. And here's where the truth of the gospel comes even more wonderful. Therefore, Satan, you will not prevail against me, right? You will not conquer me. When you try to terrify me, by telling me how great my sins are and try to reduce me to heaviness and distrust and despair, hatred, contempt, blasphemy. On the contrary, when you say that I'm a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself. For Christ died for sinners. And whenever you object that I am a sinner, you remind me of the benefit of Christ my Redeemer. It is on His shoulders the lamb. It is on his shoulders, not mine, that all my sins lie. So when you say that I am a sinner, you do not terrify me, but you comfort me immeasurably. Taking, now, if we did not have Jesus as the lamb, we would not be able to argue this way against Satan or our conscience or anyone else. It's because of the blood of the Lamb, the gospel, the good news at the heart of what Advent is about, Jesus coming to procure this for us. So we often live sometimes under the subtle thoughts of accusations, don't we? It may be the devil accusing us. It may be our own conscience. It may be someone else's condemning words, someone at school or the workplace or a parent or a sibling. And when this happens, we have to learn to fight those thoughts with the gospel, with the blood of the Lamb. So you may feel sometimes, maybe even this morning, like you're worthless. You feel like God doesn't value you. 
right? This happens to kids. This happens to uh, older youths. This happens to adults. All through life, we can feel this way, but it's not true. The gospel shows us that God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. He treasures you more than the world and galaxies. He gave his son for you. You may feel like your sins disqualify you from meaningful work in God's kingdom. Not true. Peter denied Jesus, and Jesus said that he would restore his faith, and when he's restored, he would strengthen the brothers. And he did. You may feel like you're not part of the elect, and you struggle with this sense. Maybe God hasn't chosen me. Well, if you trust in Jesus and follow him, then you are part of his elect. That's how you know. When God chooses people, he brings them to faith and he perseveres them in the faith, no matter how struggling and floundering that faith is. So if you're trusting in Jesus and the Spirit has been transforming you truly, not necessarily perfectly, then that is how you gain assurance that the Lord has chosen you. You don't need to kind of divine his minds and find the role. You trust Jesus, you follow him, and you know. Or maybe you wonder about Jesus, and you know you're not yet a Christian, but you resonate with this experience that we've been considering here of feeling accused. You carry this guilt over your head and your shoulders, and you've been trying to hide things so that you aren't found out. You've been trying to hide things so you you don't even have to deal with them yourself because self-accusation comes. Well, here's the message for you. You feel accused because you are guilty. But Jesus died so that you do not have to carry that burden. You can give him your sins. Let his work on the cross as the lamb count for you and live accusation-free. Not because you're perfect, but because you're a sin, you're a, you are a sinner who has a Savior. This is what it means to become a Christian, and you can do it this morning. That's the first way we conquer. Second way is next. Look at verse 11 again. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. What's the word of their testimony? Well, it isn't your own personal story, though that's important to share. It's the gospel story. It's the testimony about Jesus. You conquer in part, not just by believing the gospel, but by speaking the message of Jesus' victory to others. As you share this message that we've been considering, as you write that to people, give someone a, a book or give someone the Bible and encourage them to read it for themselves or speak it to them in a conversation, talking about, do you ever feel accused? I feel accused. What's going on there? Can I share with you something that's liberated me, this truth about Jesus? As you share this message of Jesus, they find forgiveness of sins and Satan's power is completely broken. It will not rule over them anymore. And notice, this doesn't just say we overcome by leading a political movement. It doesn't say we overcome by making war in our culture. We have to care about our neighbors. We should care about politics. We should be involved where we can because it's about, it's about working for the good of others and, and the flourishing of society. We need to do good to everyone. But that's not how we conquer. We conquer by trusting in Jesus and speaking about him. We conquer by believing the gospel and sharing the gospel. In other words, our purpose statement as a church, by being and making disciples of Jesus. And as we do this, we enjoy and we proclaim Jesus' victory. 
over Satan. But it will be hard. So briefly, this final scene, the wilderness, verses 13 to 17. Lest we get the impression that this is all joy not mixed with sorrow and suffering, this sobers us. Verses 13 to 17 show the dragon pursuing the woman into the wilderness. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male children, or male child. So Satan has been defanged, but his final overthrow is not yet. Jesus has conquered him. The kingdom has dawned. He rules over Satan, and yet we're waiting for Jesus' return for the final overthrow. And so in the meantime, Satan is enraged, and he's going after God's people, the woman. The point of this section, though, is that God will protect his people. Look at verse 14. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. So remember the Old Testament's the key to understanding Revelation. There's a place where God says he carries his people on eagles' wings to a wilderness where he provides for them. Anyone know what that sounds like? Shout it out. Well, that's good. Isaiah. Even before that, Isaiah's even echoing something before that. Where does God carry his people on eagles' wings to a wilderness to nourish them? Well, like Exodus, yeah, I guess he doesn't literally carry them in eagles' wings, so that was a bit hard. That's symbolic itself. In Exodus 19, that's how God talks about how he rescued Israel out of Exodus. From this Pharaoh, serpent-like, dragon-like ruler, you know, the Pharaohs had serpents on their foreheads. Um, God delivers them into the wilderness and provides for them and nourishes them, and he said, I carried you on eagles' wings. So here that imagery is used again to say, look at God, look what he's doing. Right now, we are in the wilderness, but God is carrying us on eagle's wings here, just like he always did. He's providing for us here. He's nourishing us here. And what about this time period, time, times, and half a time? There was also, you know, a number given earlier. Um, What is it? 1,260 or 90 days. Um, What's with these these imagery, these numbers here? Well, I don't have time, times, or half a time to go into it uh, right now, but I'll share this. Through Revelation, different numbers refer to the same time period. Whether it's a number of days or number of months, 42 months, or this idea of three and a half years, time, one year, times, two years, half a time, maybe half a year, perhaps. Seems like they're all referring to the same time period, three and a half years. So what's the point? Well, that number's from Daniel. It was the length of time. One of the ways Daniel talked about this was it was the length of time that Antiochus, we talked about him earlier, Antiochus IV persecuted Israel. That time period became symbolic of a period of suffering and persecution. And so what Revelation is saying is that we're in that kind of time period now. So I think the 3.5 years is not so much the length of time, but the kind of time. For the Jewish people, that three and a half year period became representative of an intense period of persecution. And now we see that's just what we're in. Uh, it's been almost 2,000 years now. Um, and it keeps, keeps going. It's a time of suffering for God's people. But the dragon will pursue people, Christians. He'll rage against the church, but God will protect him. And in the meantime, as we're here, we overcome him by trusting in Christ and sharing Christ. So this is all this present age. I think 
so much of Revelation is not so much the future few years before Jesus returns, by the way, but practical encouragement to God's people in the present age, filling our imaginations to understand what is really going on in the world here. And here we find out what's really going on. There is a dragon who's waging war, but he is conquered. So we overcome him by celebrating Advent and being really happy about it even in a really hard year. We live in an epic story, the dragon-slaying story to which every other dragon-slaying story is just an echo that resonates with our hearts because it's meant to lead us to reflect on the greatest story that God is unfolding. And our heroes come, and at Advent we celebrate His arrival to conquer and rescue and free us. So, we live and enjoy this story as we moment by moment believe the gospel and say, thank Jesus for the blood of the lamb. I'm free. I'm a sinner, yes. But every time I think of that, that can just remind me of the comfort of the gospel because Jesus is the friend of sinners. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. Thank you for the beauty of history as unfolded in, as this story. Thank you for the, the unity and the beauty of the Bible. Um, we couldn't make this up if we tried. And so thank you that you have unfolded this before us. We pray that you would give us the deep comfort and encouragement that we need. We pray that you would, by the Spirit, convict us of our sins, but so that we might take them to Jesus and rest in the forgiveness. Thank you that you have conquered through Jesus and that we share in that. We pray that we would rejoice by the Spirit this week. Amen.